0: And welcome to the Faith Over Fear podcast, where we attack our most pervasive fears with truth, because life is too short for any of us to live enslaved. We are passionate about helping God's children live in freedom. We would love to chat with you online or on social media. Visit our show notes to learn how to connect with us. I'm Jennifer Slattery, one of your hosts, and I'm here today to talk about a fear that for many has dramatically increased this year, and that's the fear of dying. And like with many of the fears we've discussed over the course of this podcast, this issue often has numerous other fears tied up with it. Fear of losing those we love, fear of missing out on important moments, the fear of uncertainty, fear of losing our salvation. Some people fear that maybe they aren't truly saved and that they'll end up in hell. And maybe you can add many more fears to that list. Ultimately, Death reminds us of how little control you and I actually have. We may eat well, take the right vitamins and supplements, exercise regularly, and still acquire a terminal illness. We might follow all the traffic laws, wear our seatbelts, remain hyper alert when driving, and get sideswiped by a semi-truck driven by a spacey driver. And the same could happen to those we love. That's where most of my worries arise, from things related or potentially related to those I love. And in the right circumstances, like when unbeknownst to me, my husband's phone dies while he's on a long car ride, the statistical improbability of a car crash begins to feel increasingly Probable. And that's what fear tends to do. It makes the improbable feel probable. So today, if nothing else, I want to help us all gain proper perspective. Because while death will probably always trigger grief, Until Christ conquers death, our final enemy for good, he does not want us to live in fear. He wants us to live and die not only with confidence, but actually with anticipation, knowing such joy awaits all of us who have trusted in Christ for salvation. And today that's who I'm talking to primarily because scripture makes it clear only those who enter heaven God's way through faith in his son will receive all of those blessings, eternal life included, that Christ's death secured. But once we basically say yes to Jesus, he places his seal of ownership upon us and he promises to hold us tight from that moment on through eternity. And we may know this, at least intellectually, and still feel afraid, largely because so much of what lies ahead feels so unknown, and unknowns in and of themselves often leave us feeling unsettled and insecure. And like I said earlier, they remind us of how little control we have. And this year has only amplified this. But hopefully, our recognition of our relative powerlessness, it causes us to turn to and rely on our Savior, who always retains complete control over our lives, our loved ones' lives, and the entire universe and beyond. So today, I hope to clear up some of those unknowns and give us all some firm truths we can hold tight to. And while I've never been there myself, I do have a supernaturally inspired book that recorded some of the best parts of heaven for us, answer some of our deepest questions, and give us unshakable assurances designed to push out our lingering fears with faith. In our discussion, I'm going to be relying heavily on Dr. Wayne Grudem's book titled Bible Doctrine, Essential Teachings of the Christian Faith. It's a resource I recommend every believer keep on hand. I refer to it often. But before I share my thoughts, I want to encourage you to ask God yourself. I am convinced He wants to use our doubts and fears to draw us closer to Himself, to deepen our understanding of Him and His truth. Because it's in the wrestling and in the asking that we find Him, and that's a beautiful, powerful, faith-igniting thing. So if you're struggling, if you're afraid, don't gloss over those feelings. Don't try to shove them down or numb yourself from them. Turn to God and seek answers in Him and with Him. Ask Him to lead you towards those things that are true and to turn you away from everything that is false. And ask Him for assurances. I do that all the time. Whenever I'm anxious or unsure about something, and He is so, so faithful to give me what I need because He doesn't want me to live in fear. And He doesn't want that for you either. No fear in life or death, as the song goes. Now, that doesn't mean we won't grieve death. We will and we should. Death goes against God's very good design, what our souls were created for. We were created for life. But we know from Scripture our present reality does not function by God's design. Our world is broken, and death is both a part of that brokenness and proclaims that brokenness. So while we don't need to fear death, we will grieve it as our souls long for, cry out for the full restoration Christ promised when all the parts of creation are placed back in their right relationship. Whether we've lost a loved one, are afraid of dying from COVID, or are processing a terminal diagnosis, we can trust that death, as we call it, is not the end. Contrary to what some might think, we don't simply slip into nothingness or cease to exist. While our bodies will fail, our souls live forever. Jesus made this clear in Matthew 25 when he said, beginning in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now the sheep being his followers and the goats representing those who have chosen not to accept his free gift of salvation. So now he concluded the passage saying in verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The moment you and I breathe our last, we are immediately ushered into the presence of God. And as Psalm 1611 states, in his presence is fullness or abundance of joy. Numerous verses verify this, that we are ushered into God's presence immediately. But perhaps the most powerful come from the words of Jesus himself as he hung on the cross. Nearing his death, he said to the criminal dying beside him in Luke twenty three forty three, truly I tell you, today... You will be with me in paradise. Now, in Bible times, people often use the phrase, truly I tell you, similar to how you and I might state amen to voice agreement with something. But Jesus's use of the phrase at the beginning of the sentence added extra significance. To begin with such an endorsement or agreement, it implied that he spoke from personal, first-hand knowledge. It was a statement of authority. Can you imagine the peace and the assurance that his statement must have given that dying man? Jesus assured him that not only would that man enter paradise that very day, but that he would be with Jesus. He would be with the one who secured the man's place in paradise when he died and rose from the dead. The apostle Paul wrote similar assurances in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he said, starting in verse 4, that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And that in verse 8, he would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. To the Philippians, he wrote in chapter 1, verses 23 to 24, for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Now, these verses might cause some confusion, especially when you consider Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where he talked about the dead in Christ being the first to rise to meet Christ when he returned to the earth. Now, I do want to proceed with humility here. I want to acknowledge that there are different views regarding this, but here's mine. When Scripture talks about the dead in Christ rising first, I believe this refers to their resurrected glorified bodies. In discussing 1 Thessalonians verses 16 and 17, Grudem states that, quote, here Paul affirms not only that God will bring with Christ those who have died, he also affirms that the dead in Christ will rise first. So these believers who have died with Christ are also raised up to meet Christ. This only makes sense if it is the souls of believers who have gone into Christ's presence who return with him, and if it is their bodies that are raised from the dead to be joined together with their souls and then to ascend to be with Christ. That said, Scripture also teaches that those who don't belong to Christ immediately go into a place of torment, the place where goodness does not exist, where they are separated from God and the things of God. And if you've ever been to what feels like a godless place, you can imagine what hell might be like, which means now is the time to accept God's invitation to life. And I have to pause here to address another area of potential confusion. When we think of life and death, we think of something that exists and Thinks and functions and grows, and something that ceases to exist and begins to decay. When the Bible speaks of death, however, it's referring to separation. We are spiritually dead when our spirits are separated from God, and we receive life when our spirits reconnect with Him. We're physically dead when our soul separates from our body. We see an example of this in Luke chapter 8. When Jesus raised a young girl back to life, Scripture says her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. So while our physical bodies indeed will stop working— Our souls will exist forever, either in heaven, united forever with God, or if we reject his offer of life, forever separated from him. So this means followers of Jesus will never, ever be separated from our God. He will remain with us from the moment of our salvation as we breathe our last and as we slip from this earth and into the paradise He has prepared for us, we can boldly walk through the unknowns ahead with our hands held securely by the God who is known, who is sure, who is loving and faithful and true. There is such comfort and peace knowing God is with us always and that we will never go through anything passing from this present earth included alone. But we may feel a great deal of anxiety for those we would or will be leaving behind. I totally get that. When my friend was dying from brain cancer, that was her greatest struggle. She had three boys. They were aged eight and under, and her husband served in the military, which meant that he went on periodic deployments for potentially long periods of time, and she worried about the pain that her boys and her husband would suffer, not just as they grieved her death, but also she worried about the pain they would suffer as they grieved a lifetime of precious moments in the decades that followed. And I totally understood that. And honestly, I worried about that too. And I grieved that with her. But you know what? God took care of those boys in such a God could only do way. When he brought a widow who had lost her husband to cancer into their lives. And through marriage, God united a single mom with kids who needed a dad to a man, a single father with kids, who needed a mom. And because they had all lost a loved one to cancer, they understood one another in a deeply personal way. So God took care of Iris's boys, and he still is taking care of Iris's boys. They missed their mom absolutely. They grieved their mom absolutely. But God did take care of them. God will take care of our loved ones. He is their provider, their protector, their comfort, their heavenly Father and friend. He promised in Romans 8, 28 to turn all things to good for those who love Him and have been called according to His purposes, and ultimately, that He will unite all of His children for all of eternity in heaven. I know life on earth can feel super, super long, but in reality, it's just a blip on eternity's timeline. Our moment of death will occupy an even shorter blip on eternity's timeline, and again, God will remain with us in that moment. Though our bodies might be weak, they might be passing away, God's spirit within us will be stronger than ever. I know this is a big fear for a lot of people. A lot of people aren't afraid so much of death itself as they are of the process they might undergo to get there. Many are worried that they'll experience significant pain. But remember when I talked about how fear makes the improbable seem probable? Well, to help us conquer this fear, we need to dial things back by reminding ourselves of actual probabilities. Most of us won't experience any more pain during death, ...than we have experienced in our lifetime previously or that we might experience in the next year. But because we all have experienced pain when we broke an arm or maybe tore a muscle or underwent surgery, we carry a memory and apprehension of pain. And because we have zero experience with death that can speak to whatever our imaginations come up with... Those imaginations are largely left unchallenged. We have a gap of information, and whenever we have a gap of information, we can either fill in that gap with worst case scenarios, which is often what we do, especially if we struggle with anxiety, or we can fill in those gaps with things that are positive and likely more probable. While some people may experience pain as they die, most won't. Rather, Their bodies will simply slow down until they lose consciousness. And for the small percentage of people who will experience pain, hospice organizations exist to help with that and to make their passing as comfortable as possible using drugs such as morphine. So in an article written by staff from Crossroads Hospice, they state, quote, in most cases, when a patient is receiving the care and support of hospice, they will not experience pain during the dying process. Instead, their body will naturally begin to shut down. They will begin to have a decreased desire to eat and drink and will start to sleep more. Breathing will slow, and their pulse will weaken. While they may have a sudden surge of energy in the final days, and their body will continue to decline until they pass away. Years ago, when news channels and my social media feed seemed filled with horrific images related to ISIS, I wondered how I would respond if I or someone I loved were to suffer persecution, and if I allowed my mind to linger there long. I always became anxious. But then I reflected on a particular chapter of Scripture that brought me such comfort. It it comes from Acts chapter 7. It's a passage that tells us the account of the first Christian martyr, the death of a man named Stephen. So, verses 54 to 60 state, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, so that was talking about Stephen had given like this long testimony about Jesus and the history of Jesus. Well, anyway, so scripture says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This account shows that the Holy Spirit came upon Stephen in a powerful way through the vision of where he was headed. And that is such a powerful image to have in your last moments, one certain to expel fear and just bring a sense of joy, joy joy-filled anticipation. And I'm certain the Holy Spirit remained with Stephen just as powerfully through the end, because that's the only way he could have prayed on their behalf, on the behalf of those who were who were stoning him. He couldn't have prayed for them, I don't believe, without the Holy Spirit. So, circling back to my earlier point regarding how death isn't the end, but rather a separation of our spirit from our body, note what he said in verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So, our passing will be but a moment on eternity's timeline. In contrast, Consider the long-lasting agony of feeding our fears regarding that moment. I don't know about you, but that's a cost much higher than I want to pay. I don't want to allow my anticipation, my expectation, what my assumptions of an improbable moment or even hour to rob me of a lifetime of peace and joy. And really, this is true regarding any fears that threaten to enslave me. Therefore, I want to grow in my ability and strength to control what I think about. You and I do have the power to do that. Scripture tells us to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ Jesus. Now let me read that verse in the surrounding verses. This is from Second Corinthians ten, verses three to five, and Scripture says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So, first in that passage, Paul reminded us that we are in a spiritual battle. Jesus told us in John chapter 10 that we have an enemy who is out to steal, kill, and destroy. If we belong to Jesus, Satan cannot steal or destroy our salvation or separate us from God and his love. But he can terrorize and deceive us, stealing, killing, and destroying our peace and our joy. But we need to remember he is already defeated. Scripture says Christ defeated the forces of evil, made a mockery of them when he died on the cross. So we are coming from a place of victory. Therefore, we must live out the victory Christ has already secured for us. And we do that in part by holding tight to truth and using that truth to counter every lie, every pretension and argument that Satan and our own fearful brains throw at us. And this is where the belt of truth scripture talks about comes in. Just as belts secured every other piece of a Roman soldier's armor in place, so the truth of scripture secures all of our spiritual weapons in place. It builds and strengthens our faith, which acts as our shield. It reminds us of our secure salvation, therefore acting as a helmet able to protect our minds. And it gives us a powerful weapon, a double-edged sword with which to fight back. We have all we need in Christ and Scripture to live confident, courageous, and victorious lives. Satan can only terrorize us if we let him. When I'm particularly anxious, when I feel like I'm under spiritual attack, or that God's calling me to share light into what feels like a particularly dark and maybe even seemingly hopeless situation— I use Satan's attacks against him, and here's how. I proclaim verbally in prayer to God that whenever I'm anxious, I'm going to turn to him in prayer. I thank him that he will use what Satan had intended for evil, to wear me down or to enslave me, that God will use it for good, to draw me closer to himself, to reveal more clearly in such stark contrast light versus darkness. And then whenever I begin to feel anxious about a particular situation, instead of fretting, I begin to. To pray. And then I pray out loud, assuming I'm in a place where I can do that, of course. We have to remain engaged in the battle and recognize that this is a battle. A while ago, a critique partner, she gave me feedback on an article related to anxiety. And in it, she stated, why is this a battle? I don't want to be in a battle. And I realized that's how many of us feel. And That sentiment is precisely why we end up acting like casualties rather than victors. There is always a battle raging in our mind, a battle for truth over deception, for faith over fear, for peace over chaos. We need to recognize this and engage using all of the spiritual tools God has given us in Jesus Christ. I discussed this in more depth in episode 15, titled The Courage to Fight Against Fear. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I encourage you to do so. Or even if you have, you may want to listen to it again. It'll provide some concrete ways you can steadily increase your faith and starve your fears, whether that's fear of financial insecurity, of the unknown, of personal harm, or like we're discussing today, fear of death. Now, I want to talk to those of you who've lost children who maybe lost a child and who are wondering if you will see that child in heaven. I can imagine that would be such a heavy weight, such a heavy concern. And while the Bible, while the Bible doesn't provide Really a clear, specific verse on this topic. I do believe it gives us enough clues that I can say with confidence that yes, children who have not yet reached what's often referred to as the age of accountability or the age when they have a clear understanding of right and wrong will be in heaven. So you will see those children. If you belong to Jesus, you will see your child again. So consider the biblical account regarding the death of King David's son. So King David was ancient Israel's second king. And when his son became ill, he King David was distraught. Second Samuel 20 verse 16 tells us, quote, David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. His reaction was so intense when David's child died. His attendants were afraid to tell him. Verse 18 says, For they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. But you know what? He didn't. Instead, he got up from the ground. He washed his face. He went into the house of the Lord. He worshiped. And then he returned to the palace and he ate. Well, shocked, his attendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. And David answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Did you notice that? I will go to him. David knew he would see his physically dead but spiritually alive son again. In discussing the salvation of young children, scholars also point to God's treatment of the Israelites as they traveled from Egypt toward the land that God promised. In Numbers chapter 13, We're told about a group of men, 12 in all, who scouted out the land and they came back completely freaked out. They refused to enter and they spread a bad report that stirred up all the people in fear and then they rebelled against Moses, God's chosen leader. Because of this, God swore they would never enter the land he'd promised. Instead, they would have to wander through the desert for 40 years. Until the older generation, those who were above 20 years old at the time of Israel's rebellion had died. The younger generation, those tw- under 20, however, would be permitted to enter the land. And finally, Isaiah 7:15, it speaks of an age where one knows right from wrong. Now, this seems to imply that there is an age where the child doesn't know right from wrong. So, to those of you who have lost young children who weren't old enough to understand the gospel, I hope this gives you the same assurance King David had. While they cannot return to you here on earth... If you belong to Jesus, I believe one day you will see them again, and you and they will be whole, healthy, and filled with joy. Like I said early on, there are often so many contributing factors and worries tied up in this particular fear, and we're not going to have time to discuss them all, nor do I even know them all, but hopefully I gave you some truths that you can stand firm on, and something of a battle plan. Now, for the rest of this episode, I want to get to the fun stuff. I want to talk about what God has planned for us. First, we know heaven is coming. Jesus, the one who died and rose again, proving his victory over death, promised that he would come, he would get us, he would take us to where he is, and we would live with him forever. And heaven will be a place of joy, of peace And fulfillment, a literal paradise, like I said earlier, it will be something of an Eden restored, which means we will spend our time doing more than simply singing. And I say this because based on what I read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God gave humans work prior to what theologians refer to as the fall or before God's very good creation became broken. So this means work was not a punishment. Genesis 2 tells us, beginning in verse 8, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now let's skip down to verse 15, where we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. But then Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and sin marred his very good creation. As a result, work became more difficult, more frustrating, toilsome. But that was not God's original design. You and I were wired to achieve, and the work God assigns gives us space to do that. Like I said, it was meant to bring us fulfillment, and I know that isn't always the case now. I know some of you are working in very unfulfilling, very joyless environments. I don't believe that's God's intent. I believe the work we do in heaven will make us feel alive, similar to how my time spent writing or speaking or or creating podcasts does for me. And those moments of joy we experience when we're doing what we were created to do, I believe that gives us a taste for heaven, and I believe heaven will be relationally fulfilling as well. We won't be sad. We won't be distrustful. We won't be nursing grudges, acting out of selfishness or defensiveness. We will be united with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, similar to how a husband or wife are in the best of marriages, only even more so. So think of your closest relationship or perhaps a particular moment when you most felt relationally close to someone and the joy you felt. In that moment, those are moments we live for. Am I right? I believe those moments give us a taste for what's ahead when sin and death and pain will be conquered for good. And we won't be a bunch of angels floating around on the clouds either. We'll have actual bodies similar to what we have now, only without sin or defects, similar to what Jesus displayed. When he resurrected from the dead. While there's much about heaven that we can't possibly know until we get there, scripture does provide plenty of clues to let us know it will be an amazing place where our experiences will be so joyful, it will make all we suffered here on earth feel worth it. If you want to learn more about heaven, I encourage you to pick up Randy Alcorn's book titled Heaven. While he does present a good deal of speculation of what I would term if-then statements, he also provides some great scriptural nuggets to consider and hold tight to. I encourage you to use his book as something of a springboard. When he references a Bible verse or passage, put the book aside and read that verse for yourself in context. What does that verse or passage reveal, if anything, regarding heaven? Journal that and keep a notebook of truths That you can return to and meditate on whenever you feel afraid. And if you haven't yet accepted Jesus's free invitation into heaven, today is your chance. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops or say certain prayers. You simply need to recognize your need for a Savior and believe that God sent you a Savior through Jesus to save you from your sins, empower you to live a life pleasing to Him, and to pay the penalty you deserve in order to give you salvation. The Bible tells us we all fall short of God's ideals, and really, we fall short of our own personal ideals as well. Most of us want to do better, to love better and act better, and not for lack of trying, am I right? Our bookstores are filled with books promising to make us better, more honest, more altruistic and honorable people, and so we strive to follow their formula or steps, and we might do successfully for a time. But then we get tired or distracted and behave once again in a way that we ourselves hate because we cannot live a godly life apart from God. That's why God sent Jesus, his sinless son, who came to earth in the form of a man to free us from our bondage to sin. When he died on the cross and rose again, he broke the power of sin and he made a way for us to be reconciled with God the Father. We receive that reconciliation, eternal life, and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit through faith. If you're ready to do that, pray with me now. And if you're not ready to do that, but would like to know more, simply contact me, Jennifer Slattery, through my website or on social media. I would love to chat with you because God doesn't want any of us to live afraid or enslaved. So let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming to earth, God in the flesh, for dying for my sins. Please forgive me for my sins. Empower me to do better. Lord, I give my life to you. Help me to love you and to follow you. And Lord, please grant me eternal life. In your name, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope today's episode gave you some truths you can hold tight to the next time fear of death comes knocking on your heart. If you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast, and then you won't miss a single episode. And we would be super encouraged if you would rate it as well. That helps others to find it. And I would love it if you would share this content with others. Until next time, may you live with the courage of one who truly has been set free. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Faith Over Fear, a production of Life Audio and the Salem Web Network. If you enjoyed what you heard today, we'd love for you to head over to your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. To learn more about Jennifer Slattery or to check out any of the resources she mentioned in this episode, just head over to her website, Loud.com, or check out our show notes. This episode was produced by Kelly Givens and edited by Stephen Sanders. A special thanks to our executive producer, Stephen McGarvey. For more faith toolkit podcasts like this, just head over to lifeaudio.com. This is Perseus Poku, host of the Sound Reasoning Ministry podcast. Learn how to share and defend your faith by listening to us weekly. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.